But in the meantime, God, we just confess that ourselves. We confess that ourselves, and we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts to make us a people bowed before you, submitting to your will. But God, we just can't help but be thankful as we bow before you, and yet you lift us up, and you care for us, and you bless us in so many amazing ways. We just thank you for that. Um, So we thank you for this time that we get to just approach your throne and make these requests. So Jesus, we thank you. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for doing that. Uh, I will give you a minute to go back to your seat now before we move into the next thing. Um, And now we are in the second week of Advent as we approach Christmas. And if you're here with us last week, and we talked about how during this Advent season, we are just focusing everything that we do on Jesus. We're reminding ourselves that Christmas, Advent, our lives, our work, our worship, and church is all about Jesus. And so as we've considered, what can we do to make that obvious to ourselves, um, to make our worship gatherings here all about Jesus, Um, We, of course, realize that one of the best practices that we have been given to focus on the person of Christ is communion. And so over the course of Advent, um, candles are great, um, and we don't have anything against lighting Advent candles, but we've just chosen to go into this Advent season um, focusing on Jesus, focusing on the body and the blood of Christ through communion. So every week as we lead up to Christmas, as we live in this time between Jesus' first arrival there on Christmas Day and as we look forward to his future coming, we just focus on him. We focus on the covenant that we have in him. We focus on his body given for us and his blood shed for us on the cross. And so we're going to do communion here today with one another. And so as we do this, I'm going to invite you in a minute um, to come forward and to take um, the bread and the wine and to return to your seats. But before we take communion today, I'm also just going to give each and every one of us a bit of time, a time of reflection as we continue to make this all about Christ. I'm, I'm reminded of Paul's instructions for the Corinthians where they had not made communion all about Jesus. Um, he had to rebuke the selfish practice that they had turned it into, um, that some people were cutting ahead in the line, finishing up all the food and wine, getting drunk while others were left with nothing. And, and Paul corrected them, and he said that they were guilty of abuse against the body of Christ because they had not made it about him. They had failed to discern the body and the blood of Christ. And so we take that warning very seriously, and we look at this, and we want to make sure that it is all about Christ. And the instruction that Paul gave in that same passage is that every person ought to examine themselves, to examine whether, they're do- whether we're doing this for ourselves, whether we are doing this truly focused on the body and blood of Christ. And so it's at this time I'm going to invite you um, to come and to grab the bread and the wine and then to return to your seats. And then I'm just going to walk us through a little time of reflection as we focus our hearts and minds on Christ and as we continue to see that this isn't about us, but this is about him. And so would you come forward? We have two stations in the front, and there is one in the back as well. But would you grab the cups and return to your seats?
So as we consider this week the theme of peace, we're reminded that the only peace that truly could experience is the peace that we receive from Christ being king, um, that we have a very mixed relationship with, with kings, with authority, because we, we never have a king that's quite like Jesus. But what we're reminded of is that one day Jesus will rule in full. He will right now in this time where he's not yet ruling and reigning in full, that we still live under his authority, that we as followers of Jesus, we do submit to him as king. And so it's during this time that I just want you to reflect on the aspects of our lives in which we have not bowed to his authority. Is there anything in your life where, where you've gone out on your own, not out of submission to him? his will, but out of your own heart. And it's at this time that we get to come before him and repent. We get to come before him and repent as we consider what he did about our rebellion, what he did about the times in which we do not submit to his authority, and, and it was this. He was giving his body to be broken for us. He was giving his blood to be shed for us. But would you take a moment to reflect your life and how you live under the authority of Jesus as King.
Chapter 15, it tells us that at the culmination of all things, after Christ's wrath has been poured out, and afterwards it says in chapter 15, John wrote, that I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. All is at peace, it seems. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. We're reminded that John told us in 1 John 5, who is it that overcomes only the one with faith in Christ? And those who would overcome the beast, they held harps given to them by God, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. These are the lyrics. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so as we come before the bread and the wine now, may those words be the words of our hearts and minds, just declaring goodness, who God is, declaring the authority over all creation that Christ has. And as you've had time to reflect on Christ as King, how we'll take communion together. And so it was while they were eating, the disciples and Jesus celebrating Passover together, that Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave his bread to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. So would you take and eat now? And then, Jesus took the cup gave thanks, and he offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take this. So Jesus, we just praise you. We thank you. 
just declare those same words of Revelation chapter 15. We declare great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? God, we will be a people who fear you and who give glory to your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so, Jesus, thank you for revealing to us the righteous act that you were doing on the cross. We thank you for giving us your body and your blood for the forgiveness of sins, to take on your wrath, that we don't have to be the ones who stand before your wrath at the end of time, but we get to be the people just singing your praises, declaring that. And we just stop and we consider that, the great privilege that we have to be the ones in you and to be the ones that have you in us. And so it's during this time that we just focus on you would you continue to make our lives all about Jesus? So now, as we turn our attention to your word, God, would you do so much more than just teach us? Would you shape us? Would you form us? Would you make us more like yourself? Would you bend our knees in submission to you? We just give you ourselves. We ask that you would do as you will. So now we just pray for Joey as he comes and he shares. And would your word be spoken powerfully through him? We open our ears to listen to what it is that you have to say to us today. So Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Yes, thank you very much, worship team, and for Evan for leading that time in communion. Before we jump into anything, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, <clears throat> you are Lord, and you alone. You are the creator of the heavens and all that is in them. And Lord, we acknowledge you as that Lord. Lord, you have kept your promise to us by sending us your son. And Lord, you are righteous for doing this, and you are loving. We praise you for this, and we just ask that right now you would declare yourself that you would receive all glory from this and you alone. May your word be proclaimed, and may our hearts be changed by the power that you have. We praise you, God, and it's in your name we pray. Cool. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Joey. <laughs> I am a member of Common Ground Church, and I've been invited by Evan to preach today in this Advent series. Uh, Evan introduced the series last week, the series that is all about Jesus. And the purpose for this is, during the Advent season, to remind us that all things, including our own lives, are to be, you guessed it, all about Jesus. Uh, for the series, we are working backward through Jesus' life, beginning with the resurrection of Christ, which Evan spoke on last week, moving all the way toward Jesus' birth. Today, I will be preaching on one aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry, namely his kingship. Uh, to demonstrate this, I am primarily uh, speaking from the text, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. So if you have your Bibles, um, there will be words on the screen, but 
that is where we will be primarily today. But in this passage, Jesus teaches with authority and heals a man with an unclean spirit. I hope that today we can see what the scriptures say about Jesus' authority over us and the implications of that. For this passage shows that Jesus is the Christ. He is the King, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And as such, he has complete authority and command over all things, including our own lives. And this fact necessitates our love and obedience to him and him alone. But his kingship is not tyrannical or oppressive. He is a good king. Jesus' rule and reign over our lives means the fullest joy and most abundant life for us. After all, that is what John says at the end of his gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Or, to summarize it, King Jesus demands our faith-filled obedience, but in that we have our great reward. So let's read our text for this morning. In Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 28. And this is Jesus and his disciples saying, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately in their synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray again. Lord, we have just heard your word. and We've just seen your power. And Lord, right now, may again this speak to us. May your authority displayed here show us that you have authority in our lives. May we walk in obedience to you, full of faith, eyes looking to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of it. And Lord, we just thank you that you have gathered us here together. And just pray, Lord, that again, your word would be proclaimed continually. Amen. Okay, so before jumping into the text, I do want to talk a little bit about the context of Mark up to this point. Um, it is in chapter 1, so uh, you'll kind of see that Mark really starts off with a bang. Because um, right away, Mark skips Christmas. The birth of Jesus is not recorded in this gospel. And we're just seeing that John the Baptist prophesies about the coming of Christ. One verse that captures how John viewed Jesus is in verse 7. After me, he said, John the Baptist says about Jesus, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So already, John, who was one who had great influence in that day, who people listened to, in that time, 
He's even saying, Jesus, the one who comes after me, is greater than I am. And then also, we just see John's words confirmed, where Jesus is actually baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends on him. By the Holy Spirit descending on him, and the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, it's essentially the other persons of the Trinity, quote, approving of Jesus, setting their blessing on him, anointing him for his ministry ahead. He is given authority by the Father. In John chapter 5, Jesus describes this about himself. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, he has also granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then Jesus just shows this authority even further by going into the wilderness. He is tempted by the devil himself, by the prince of demons, by Satan. But Jesus overcomes him easily, without even blinking. And this is really cool, especially considering this passage, because we see Jesus, you know, cast out an unclean spirit, but it's not like this was a big test. Like, he had already overcome the ruler. He had already beaten him and shown his authority over the devil. But then, also next, Jesus calls the disciples to himself and shows his authority to transform people and to call people to his name and give them life in his name. For he says to the disciples, who are fishermen, uh, Peter and Andrew and then James and John, he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. That make you become is a very transformative statement. He says, I will make you become who I want you to be. And he has power over the disciples' lives. And he transforms them for the better. And already we see that Jesus has great authority. And since I've used that word a lot, <laughs> I think it's appropriate that we actually define what authority is. Um, so you'll see it on the screen there. This is Google's definition of authority. Um, there's two kinds. There's authority as a direct object, I guess, um, <laughs> which is the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. And there can also be an authority as a person, like, you know, submit to the authorities, that kind of, kind of thing, which describes a person or a organization having power or control in a particular, typically political or administrative sphere. And this is actually, we'll see, pretty closely aligned to what the biblical word used for authority is here. Because in this Mark passage, verse 20 through 28, when in verse 22 it says, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, that word for authority is called exousia in Greek. And essentially, it is just power of influence and right to exercise power. So Google pretty much hits it right on the head. It's not always a bad definition. <laughs> Some other associations with the word um, exousia in the Bible uh, are associated with, like, the rule of government. And one example of that is in Luke 23, when Jesus is before Pilate, um, it says that when Pilate learned that he belonged to, Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, that jurisdiction word, that's like exousia, he sent them over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. It also refers to um, the husband's authority over the wife in a marriage relationship, and therefore Christ's authority over the church, which is the sign of marriage, which points to that. Which in Ephesians 5.23, uh, Paul writes that the husband is head over the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. It is a slightly different word there, but the same association. 
Another one is found in 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about the head coverings, and it says the wife, the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. That is the exousia word right there. Um, and the other, the other word that it has an association to is the last one, which is probably the most important for just demonstrating Jesus' kingship, is that this word actually has an association to regality. It is a sign of regality. It is a crown. And this, of course, implies that the one who has exousia has a crown on their head. And this is what Jesus has here. Now I realize this is what the Bible says about authority. This isn't always what we think about authority, though, is it? I think sometimes we can have some uh, different connotations that we have. I mean, government, husband-wife relations, we know that these things can, a lot of people have very strong opinions about. Um, and as Americans, sometimes some very anti-authority opinions about. The sort of don't tell me what to do type of attitude that, I mean, we rebelled against the king initially, right, in the Revolutionary War. Like, that was how we started as the nation of America. Um, and I think it's right, in, in some sense, that we do struggle with authority because in this world, there is just bad authority. There are people that are oppressive and abusive, governments, and also husbands in some cases. Um, not every husband loves his wife as Christ calls him to. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely know about that. <laughs> but um, know this, though, that even though this fallen world has bad authority, Jesus' authority is not like that of the world. Not only is it greater, but it is kinder, more loving, and it is perfect. And we can't get away from it. We are ruled by something now. And in the end, we all will be ruled by Jesus, as has been proclaimed even up to this point. Paul says in Romans 6.16 that we are either slaves, that we are slaves of what we obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Either way, we are ruled by something. And even though we do see lots of a bad, bad authority, and sometimes we present ourselves to those things, Jesus' authority is better, more perfect, loving, merciful than any earthly authority. And that's where we see here. We see Jesus' authority displayed. And we see it as also a great mercy. For when he casts out the demon, he shows mercy to this man by giving him freedom from this demon's oppression. Well, let's actually look at what the words of the text say this morning. So in verse 21... It says, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So basically, it just says, Jesus immediately went in to the synagogue and just started teaching like he owns the place. Well, that's because he does. <laughs> if anyone else did this, it would have been very presumptuous. Not everyone just has the right to go into a Jewish synagogue and start teaching. Unless you're a religious leader, you're not allowed to do it. But Jesus does. He just goes in and starts teaching. And there are other places of scripture that shows that he has every right to do this. Some of them include Colossians 1.16, For by Jesus all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things were created through him and for him. And then also Hebrews 1.3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. The whole universe by his word. And then in John, it says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So you see, he is the one with all knowledge. He himself is the living word. And he can teach with authority. And notice also all those references I pulled were from the first chapter of their respective birth, their respective books. And I think Mark has that intention where he really likes to make sure that the people, when they're reading his gospel, know that this Jesus is the King Jesus from the very beginning. And then when Jesus teaches with such authority, we're told in verse 22 that these people who are listening, they were astonished at his teaching or he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Understand what the people are astonished at. They are astonished at his teaching, his teaching, what he says to them, because he taught authoritatively. And he, we are told also that this is not like the scribes of the day. And that is because even today, Jewish rabbis will often quote other rabbis' comments and interpretations of the scriptures. This was true back then also, probably even to a greater extent. It was often even viewed as unwise to quote directly from the scriptures, but rather, instead, it was more wise to quote from other people's interpretations. And like, this is good in a sense, right? Like, it's not unlike our practice of citing sources and reports and presentations and stuff like that. Like, we want to have redundancy in what we're quoting from, make sure people are saying the same things that we are. But, just one problem. The more you rely on secondary sources, the further away you get from the primary sources. In other words, the scribes of Judea were just playing a centuries-long game of telephone. They were getting away from the true meaning of what the scriptures actually taught. This is not what Jesus did, though. He taught as if he is the authority on the passage at hand, because he is. God himself is the author of these words that he was teaching from, and Jesus is God. Now, <laughs> I'm no mathematician. Well, actually, I am, but <laughs> if A equals B and B equals C, then A must equal C, right? <laughs> and the other thing is, I mean, these people, they're astonished at this, right? Like, and if these scribes really were teaching so unauthoritatively, it's likely that these people had never heard much good teaching in their lives before. And they cannot help but be drawn to it. And this is also helpful for us. Jesus' teaching is naturally captivating, especially to his own people. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. Let's lean into that. Let's crave Jesus' authoritative teaching. It is healing to us and refreshment to our souls. Jesus teaches with authority, and that is good for us. We don't want a king who has no authority. But then, just as things are going good, as you see in the text, a challenger approaches. In verse 23, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. When Jesus is captivating the people with the true good news, this is an opportune time for the enemy to disrupt. The enemy loves nothing more than to try and cover up the light with a dark shroud. And the unfortunate truth about this particular case, and many other cases in Scripture, is that the vehicle of this enemy's attack was a man. It was a human being. And grammatically speaking, the phrase, when it says, 
this man had an unclean spirit, with an unclean spirit, that phrase. That's the same as when Paul says that as Christians, because of God, we are in Christ Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Those two phrases, with an unclean spirit, in Christ Jesus, grammatically speaking, in the Greek, are the same. So I think the implication of that is that just as Christ is the head of the body and is the Lord of our lives, that this unclean spirit was the evil Lord of this man's life. This spirit was ruling over him. We don't know how long this man was possessed for. We don't know how he became possessed. But we do know that this being was ruling him and enslaving him. His life was not good because it was not his own. He was not free. But we'll come back to him in a moment. What does the demon actually say to Jesus? Well, he first opens with, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? To be honest, I think this question is rhetorical, given the next question. Have you come to destroy us? I think this demon knew exactly what Jesus' intention was, was to rid the world of all evil. And this demon, being evil, he's afraid of that. He cowers before him. He's afraid that he will be destroyed. Even he knew that Jesus had power, power to destroy him and the other minions of Satan. As I said before, he had already overcome Satan in the desert. Who's to say that he won't do that exact same thing here? I also think this question is somewhat rhetorical, though. Because he says, have you come to destroy us? I think he knows the answer to that. But then, by the next statement, he says, he knows already who Jesus is. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. How did he know, though? How did he know that Jesus is the Holy One, the Holy One of God? Well, presumably, I think, this man with the unclean spirit was present during Jesus' teaching. So he also would have noticed the authority with which Jesus taught. And as said before, this is repulsive to him. He could have known it by inferring that from his teaching. And I think that is probably the more likely thing. But it is possible that he could have just known supernaturally. He could have just been there and sensed Christ's presence. Any of these ways, however he knew that Jesus was the Holy One, the main point is that this unclean spirit knew that Jesus of Nazareth, the man, was the Holy One of God. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one of God, the one who is appointed to rule over all things. As it says in Daniel chapter 7, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This demon knew who Jesus was, that he would have all rule over all things. And the demons seethed at this, because Christ has command over them. Though their will is contrary to his, they have no choice but to obey him. And this is, I think, a helpful thing for us to know as well, just to think about a little bit. Because if this demon believes, the ones who are contrary to Christ, how much more should we, his redeemed people, the, one who is, the ones who have been chosen for his own possession, know who Jesus is as the Holy One? He is love, he is mercy, and he is also the Holy One of God. He is the King of the universe. He deserves our full obedience and submission. I think James 2, verse 19, puts it the simplest. He says to these people, You believe that God is one. You do well. 
even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, I think what James is mostly saying here is not that having faith itself is what, or sorry, excuse me, not, not that works itself is what saves you. Faith is what saves you. We know that from many other places in Scripture. However, we are not saved uh, by faith to just do nothing. We are saved by faith, in, by, through grace, for good works in Christ Jesus. See, this demon, he believed, but he did not obey. But in God's love and grace in our lives, if we have been saved, we have been given hearts to love and obey him, and we should walk in that. We have been created to be his workmanship. So this demon knows that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And then, <laughs> rather than just leave it at that, Jesus decides to validate the claim, essentially. Because in verse 25, it says, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him immediately. This is a rebuke. Jesus has a strong word for this spirit. It is a commanding word, one that tells him what to do. It's not a walking on eggshells like, oh, excuse me, like, really, I'm teaching here. I'd really appreciate it if you lowered your voice and maybe just, if you need to scream, just go outside or something like that. That's so pathetic, right? Like, we don't want a king who's like that. We want one who has authority over all evil. One who will say, be silent. Come out of him, you evildoer. It is a commanding word, a strong word. And, and, the demon had to obey. The demon had to follow Jesus' orders. Understand here that the type of power Jesus shows here is his sovereign power, his all-controlling power. This demon had no option but to obey Jesus, though he did not want to. The king's will had to be done. And I think also that's just... It's just evidence that it's not the demon's will, just the fact that he tries to convulse, that he convulses the man and causes him to scream right before he leaves. But I think a passage that really just cap captures God's sovereign will and his sovereign power is in Isaiah 43, verses 11 through 13, where this is the Lord speaking. He says, I, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the great I am. And besides me, there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there is no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? I work, and who can turn it back? Jesus spoke, and it came to pass. He worked, and who could turn it back? This is the power of the Almighty God. But let us also go back to that life of the poor man that the demon had power over. Let us notice that the same act that proclaimed the authority of Christ over this demon is the very same act that freed this man from the demon's oppression. We see this in our, our Isaiah passage as well, right? He says, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. That is how he asserts himself as God, is he is the Savior, the only Savior. 
he declared, he saved, he proclaimed. God, the all-powerful God, the one who works and no one can turn it back, this is the God who saved this man. We're not told what happens with this man after Jesus cast the demon out of him. We don't know if he becomes a follower of Jesus or not, but certainly this was a great healing for this man, and it was all thanks to Jesus' authority. But to be honest, if he didn't end up following Christ after this demon was cast out of him, that's a true tragedy. That's a true tragedy. Because Jesus did not save him for him to become enslaved to something else, but to rule in his life with loving kindness. As I said before, either way, we're ruled by something. Jesus wanted to rule over this man. And if he did not follow him, that would have been truly tragic. Because he wouldn't have just been free on his own. He would have become enslaved to something else. And after seeing the power of the Almighty, the sovereign God, the people respond in the only way you really can respond. It says, and they were all amazed that they questioned themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey. The people are amazed. What else would you be after what you just saw? That's good. It's good to be amazed at that. That's the point. Jesus wants us to be amazed at him. But the people also miss things. Because we see in verse 27, they're excellent observers. They say exactly what happened. They summarize it perfectly. Jesus taught with authority, then commands the unclean spirits, and even they obey him. That's great. They saw it. But it doesn't lead to anything else significant. So what is the point they miss exactly then? I think, again, as I said before in the introduction, we need to look no further than what John said. He said, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Christ's authority is displayed that we might believe in him, put our trust in him, and follow him and obey him and love him more than anything else. And this people's response of seeing but then doing nothing is unfortunately all too common in the days of Jesus. In John chapter 6, we are told that when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the crowds seek him again. And then Jesus says of why they seek him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They were just trying to bum a free meal off Jesus again. They were just trying to go to him for what they could get from him, not for him himself. And same also in this chapter, in Mark chapter 1. At the end, Jesus heals a leper. Jesus has pity on him and heals him. Jesus, this leper asks to be healed, and Jesus does. But then Jesus gives him a direction. He says in Mark chapter 1, verse 44, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. For proof to them. But then in verse 45, this leper, or once leper, he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. This guy is, it's understandable, right? Like th Jesus did, did something amazing in your life. Like how can you not want to share about that, right? But he missed 
the fact that Jesus directly told him not to say anything. And he just did that immediately. This guy was healed and then went on his merry way. Um, but yeah, so they completely gloss over the point. They merely use Jesus for personal gain. They do not regard him as Lord and Savior. They do not believe in him as John's signs, or as John said these signs were meant to do. Because you see also, these signs were not themselves the end of why Jesus did them. Despite the attention that they garnered, those signs were always to be in service to his teaching. Jesus himself also said in Mark chapter 1, later in this very chapter, when people are looking for him to be healed by him, Jesus says in Mark 138, let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus came to preach the good news. The good news, which he says in Mark 1.15, is to repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe. That's the news that he had for people. And isn't this unfortunate that this mentality is oftentimes all too true in our lives as well. How often do we come to church, come to Christ, with an observer's mentality only, not as participants? I think there's this idea sometimes, as you know, America is a very consumeristic culture, and sometimes we have consumer church where we just go to whatever church fits our needs the best, or we only go to Christ when we're asking things of him, not going to him for him, himself. This, is, this ought not to be so. What about outside of church, too? Maybe we do well to devote ourselves to faithful obedience to God in the morning devotions, Sunday services, whatever. But the moment we leave those, we check out and we say, I'm on my time now. Like, I gave this to you, but now this is mine. That's withholding part of ourselves from him. But that's also just very foolish. Like, what folly is it when we all do that? What are we missing out on? When we're giving that time, when we're withholding that time for ourselves, we're also withholding the blessing that Christ has for us. It is all Christ's time anyways, as we see. He is all the all-sovereign one. Let us continually give it to him. He is the good and gracious king that wants to give us far more than we could ever have for ourselves. And now that we're at the end of the text, I hope it's clear already, but the application, it is very simple. Just don't miss the point that the people did. Don't miss the point. When we encounter Jesus the King, the true Jesus, the one who has all power, authority, and dominion over all things, that demands a response. We can't just do nothing. I'm reminded of a passage, again in Isaiah, where Isaiah, he is before the throne of God. I have it written up there. <clears throat> where he says, he records for us that, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He is a glorious king. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and two covered his face, and two he covered with his feet, and two he flew. <coughs> Excuse me, that was loud. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he has taken that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You see, Isaiah, he saw the king, did he not? He saw the king, the Lord of hosts. And his response was woe. Because he knew that he was a man of unclean lips. And I think when we see this king, see Jesus in this way, that's what it should lead to in our hearts. It should lead to an overwhelming understanding that we are lost. That we are fallen creatures. That we cannot, in any power of our own, do anything good before him. He is full of glory. He is holy. And this is the truth of the gospel, right? For before Jesus, we had absolutely no hope before God. We stood condemned when left to our own power. But thanks be to God. For as Isaiah said, woe is me. What was the response of God? It was not to say, yeah, you're right. Go to hell. Go to the fire. No. It was to take a burning coal to his lips and to say, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. Jesus showed mercy. Christ showed mercy to us in the same way as well. So when we come to him in repentance, believing that he is the son of God, he will give us mercy. Jesus' teaching, his healings, and his other signs were meant to show us his authority and his kingship. And we are meant to respond by worshiping him and loving him as the true and living God. We have peace at his throne from that. There's your Advent tie-in. King Jesus demands our faith-filled obedience, and in it we have our great reward. Let us repent of our sins, let us believe in his name, and let us follow him lovingly and obediently as our Savior. He has so many treasures in store for us more than we could ever ask or think. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The whole earth is full of your glory. Lord, you are so holy and we cannot come before you in any power of our own. Lord, our offerings best offerings with you are like filthy rags. But Jesus saved us. In his Holy Spirit, you, the Holy Spirit, gave us hearts to love you, to obey you, to worship you, to seek right things, to honor you as God. 
And Lord, as we have seen your power here in this passage, as we've seen your glory, Lord, let us respond by giving you all glory and offer our bodies and our souls as living sacrifices to you, holy and acceptable. It is by your blood that we are clean. And we thank you so much for this. The gospel is true and we can rejoice. So now may we go continually and walk in obedience to you, our faithful king. In your name I pray. Amen. Words of wonder
Common Ground Church. As you go from here, go with the words of Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace and peace coming ground. Have an awesome week. Oh